This podcast is brought to you by Score Foundation. Hi, my name is George Abraham and welcome to Iway Conversations. My guest today is John Samuel from the United States. He's an entrepreneur, a writer and a family man. Hi John, welcome. Thank you so much George. I'm so excited to be here. John, you've uh, uh, either published or just about published a book. So what is this book all about? Yeah, so my book will be released on November 1st and it's called Don't Ask the Blind Guy for Direction. a 30,000 mile journey for love, confidence and a sense of belonging. And the book, you know, it, it talks about it right there in the title. I it's about my journey around the world uh looking for love and confidence and sense of belonging that everybody wants. Uh but I did that as a blind person. When you say 30,000 miles around the world, um yes. you know, it sounds a long distance. What exactly does it mean? Yeah, so I'm originally from uh North Carolina. My folks immigrated from India in 1969 from Kerala. Yeah. And I was raised in North Carolina. And, yeah. But when I was in college, I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa and I was up in school in Richmond, Virginia, which is just a 150 miles away. But I was uh diagnosed with it and I didn't know how to deal with it. When you're told you're going blind, it's a it's a devastating feeling and uh, you feel alone and I my actions led to me flying out of college i came back home to north carolina and started taking classes at nc state university and eventually i took so many classes that they had to let me into a full time program and i graduated but if you've ever been to north carolina and george you've been to visit in north carolina and uh, you know there's not much public transportation and you yeah. have to drive yeah uh, and so and this is a pre uber pre lift days and so you know, when i couldn't drive i knew i had to get out of north carolina because I didn't think anyone blind could ever live here. And so I uh I decided to move out to Bangalore, India, which had, you know, I could get a car and driver, there was auto rickshaws, there was a much more accessible place for me in terms of transportation. In Bangalore, what was the job? Meaning uh was it an IT kind of job or was it uh, a kind of an outsourced outsourcing company? What what was the assignment? Yeah, so when I was in college, when I first went to college, I went in as an engineering student. but as my site was failing i decided that's why i just i couldn't do engineering so i switched to accounting which was much easier for me with my my limited set at the time and so when i came to uh bangalore i was working for a company called saskin and i which was a it communication company but i was on the finance department and i was working in corporate treasury so i was managing cash management and uh uh currency hedging and uh and uh, for the company which was pretty exciting you started losing your eyesight while you were in university and uh, very often that's an age when uh, it's very difficult to kind of accept the reality of uh, vision loss yeah uh, what is your story meaning have you come to terms with your vision loss or is that still a challenge yeah so as i mentioned when i first was diagnosed i didn't take it well and i um ended up uh failing out of college and so you know that was the initial reaction and then over the next several years i kept it a secret 
you know, only very close family members knew and, and very close friends. It did not, it wasn't something openly talked about. And especially when we were in India, I remember, you know, visiting my family and my parents saying, stay close. They didn't want people to know that I couldn't see that well. And so, you know, when I was in New York, I started opening up with um, some friends and it was something we never talked about. We never put a label of retinitis pigmentosa or blindness, but it was just something that we, my friends knew and they took care of me. But it really took me going to grad school in Washington, D.C., where I did my MBA because to really open up about my vision loss, because that was the first time I did it. I was actually at a orientation event for my MBA. And we had these, we were at this um, table where they had name cards where you're supposed to go, where you're supposed to go sit. And I couldn't see. So I turned to the person next to me and it happened to be the associate dean of the business school. And she was the one who had actually recruited me to come to, uh, to Washington, D.C. and to grad school there. And so she could empathize with me because she actually had a child with special needs. And she encouraged me to be open about my vision loss with my classmates. And, and so I did. And I started talking about it openly. And I often say that was the first time I could truly be my true self. And I was able to open up my heart and I was able to, um, to, to, to find love for the first time. And I met my wife in the MBA program. But uh, yeah, that was my real first time opening about it personally. But it took me uh, another 10 years for me to be able to open up, or, uh, yeah, seven years, five years to be able to open up professionally. You said uh, when you came back from India, you uh, started working for uh, the city of New York. Yes. So what was your assignment there? When I was working for the city of New York, I was working for the, the actual city of New York, uh, providing financial education for city employees. This includes fire, the firemen and women, the uh, firehouses, the sanitation yards. It's, it's everybody who works for the city. And this was in 2008 and nine during the recession in the United States. Yeah. And really we could not, we couldn't tell people not to take the money out of their retirement or pensions, but we can only educate them. So I had to travel all around New York city. I don't know if you've been to New York, but it's, it's, it's pretty much made of five major parts, five boroughs. And it's quite large. And I had to go all around, um, to these remote areas and, uh, educate people. But, uh, it was a, it was an interesting job because it taught me a lot about you know traveling without being able to see. It, it taught me how to speak in front of large groups of people and people with different backgrounds than myself. But it didn't pay that well, and I was literally living paycheck to paycheck because Manhattan is very expensive to live in, and uh, and so that was kind of the driver for me to leave. But uh, otherwise, you know, New York provided the accessibility from a from a travel mobility perspective. But from a career perspective, that's where I struggled. And uh, that's why I needed to move on. If you know of anyone with vision impairment who needs guidance on living life with blindness, please share the IWA National Toll Free Helpline number 1-800-5320-469. The number is one eight zero zero five three two zero four six nine. When you were working in Africa, where were you actually based? You lived in the U.S. and worked in Africa, or you actually had to relocate to Africa? Yeah, I relocated to Douala, Cameroon, which is in West Central Africa. Right, and so I was there for you know the majority of my three years in Africa. I spent. Pretty much two years there. And then 
I later moved to Kampala, Uganda, where I spent a year. I, I must ask you here, meaning, um, <laughs> uh, you, you probably had uh, partial vision at that point of time. Uh, so what were your major uh, challenges when you were working in Africa in terms of your travel, in terms of engaging with your colleagues and engaging with the local day-to-day uh, -day life? I've never been to Africa. I had never been to Cameroon where the, the major languages are French and English. Yeah. I didn't know French. So, you know, you, you land there, I have to figure out how to navigate. And often, you know, I had to figure out how to build a, start a business from scratch. Yeah. And, and so when it came to my vision loss, I didn't want people to know. Yeah. Because I thought, it, you, know, it, you know, before it liability professionally, but now it was literally a liability from a safety perspective. I yeah. didn't want people to know. And I remember even the first day I landed, many of the flights in, that come into Africa landed in the middle of the night. So yes. time zones. And so I remember landing my very first day in Cameroon and I had to go to the hotel. But, you know, having traveled to India quite a bit, you, you can imagine you're just expecting after you get out of baggage claim to hear people yelling. Yeah. Right? So I, I got out of there and I heard someone say, taxi, taxi. I walked over them to the voice. Couldn't yeah. see them. Just heard the taxi, taxi. And I told him the hotel, he grabbed my suitcase and I started listening to the wheels of the suitcase moving. Yeah. And this is the back in the days of the old Nokia, uh, the push button phones. Yeah. So I had dialed my parents' number on the phone and I had my finger on the send button and I had it in my pocket. And so I just listened to the wheels moving and I followed the wheels. When he stepped up, I stepped up. When he stepped down, I stepped down. And I got to the car and I finally got to the hotel and and I felt like I can do this. And that was one of the very first challenges was just how do you get around? And I yeah. realized that everything had to be choreographed. So I started to go to the same restaurants. I'd sit in the same seat. I'd order the same food. I, everything I did was choreographed. Uh, when I traveled, I would be very deliberate, intentional. I had to go very slowly. I would be very, I'd plan in advance. I, you know, when I got to a country the first time, I, first thing was the most important thing was to find a, a taxi driver that I could trust. And so uh, I would always have them waiting for me. And when it came to my team, my team was something we never talked about, but it, my team would see that they, they knew something was wrong with my eyes. And I, I was very, um, you know, loving to them and they protected me. It was a, we, I built a team around me based on the values that I thought was important. And it really was about protecting my secret and my, and my life. And that was about accountability, trust. And uh, these were some of the, 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 the core values that I built teams around. And, uh, and so, you know, when I had a, when you have a good team like that, they're going to protect you. And um, so, yeah, it's a, you know, yeah, everything was choreographed and it's like, so for my suitcase even. So when you look at the book of the cover, you'll see a yellow suitcase and that yellow suitcase that I carried around the world was uh, the contrast level. When you see the yellow suitcase on the, on the uh, conveyor belt, it was easy for me to see, right? So that was one thing. I kept ribbons on my suitcases so I could feel even to know where my suitcase is. Um, there was lots of different techniques like that I had to figure out, but uh, it was uh, an adventure. So when you went out in your business meetings in, uh, say, in Africa, did you go with your colleagues or you essentially traveled alone? So when I went to meetings, let's say in, in Cameroon, I would often go with... Um, one or two members of my team. And then I always, I had met a driver when I was in the hotel. Um, a lot of the taxi drivers were taking advantage of me. 
Yeah. And so when I came out one day, a taxi driver saw me come out and he was with another person in the car and he stopped by, he said, go back into the hotel. I'll come get you. Okay. And so I went back in and he came back and his name was Blaze and he never left my side after that. And so Blaze, I brought him on when I got the company, you know, going, I brought him on full time. And right. so I, I joked and called him. He was my CTO, my chief transport officer. And so <laughs> everywhere I went, I had Blaze next to me. And even after I left um, Cameroon, I bought him a laptop said he, and gave him, it got Skype installed, said he could always reach me. And uh, even 10 years later, you know, I left 10 years ago, um, he still contacts me. And, uh, and that's one of those relationships that you, you cherish. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be able to do the work I do. So when you came back to the U.S. after your uh, sojourn in, in, in Africa, uh, what was your uh, next move? Yeah, that was really about doing my MBA. So I always had an idea of doing my MBA, but I never thought I would be able to get into an MBA program. One, because of my grades. You know, two, because of the, the, you know, my blindness. I thought you know, colleges and universities would see it as a liability. And three was just like, how would I be able to do the actual work? And, you know, as I mentioned, as I started, you know, technology was getting so much better and the inverted colors and the, you know, magnification software that now took care of that barrier. And, you know, and when it came down to my grades, I had such a great work experience now because there was not many people who could actually say that they actually started a company in Africa that made millions of dollars. Yeah. And uh, so I, I now feel more comfortable. And when I went to GW and George Washington University for my MBA, I, uh, I was much, I was, I felt that there was a new level of confidence that I had never had. And, um, and when I started opening up about my vision loss with my classmates, you know, they made it much easier for me to be, set me up for success. And it, it was great. So you, you mentioned somewhere uh, earlier today that uh, you met your wife uh, while you <laughs> were at George Washington uh, 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 University. Uh, yes. What's the story there, um, John? <laughs> yeah, so my wife, Nicole, was in the MBA program with me, and we were working on a project together. And so uh, it was on uh, foreign direct investments. Uh, I, thought project, our... I thought project family. <laughs> no, not project family. It was <laughs> macroeconomics. You know, the macroeconomics. And we joke and say that we, we fell in love with uh, reading the Wall Street Journal. Right. And so, you know, but Nicole got to see me, you know, not as somebody who's just blind, not as somebody, you know, but she got to see me as a person. She yeah. saw the way I work. She saw me losing my sight, me being open about it. And, and so, you know, we decided we had a conversation one day. And before we went on our first date, we said, is this worth it? Because we're friends. Is this worth us, you know, ruining a, a friendship over? And we talked about, we laid it on the ground. We laid it on the table. I'm losing my sight. I'm going blind. Is this something you can handle, right? And then she had her own stuff going on in her own life. And we talked about it. And we decided that this is something that is worth us going on a date. And uh, we went out on our first date. And um, and um, she's been the best thing that ever happened to me. So um, after your MBA, um, you joined, um, was it LCI that you joined or you worked somewhere else? Yeah, I actually worked somewhere else. So when I was coming out of my MBA program, I was looking for jobs. And I have all these phone interviews and those went fantastic. And I was looking for leadership development programs at some of the top companies. Yeah. And so 
you know, I'd have to go through seven, eight rounds of interviews on the phone. And then they'd invite me to come out to the, to visit them in person. Yeah. But when they met me in person, I did not, I never disclosed that I couldn't see. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, I, I, I struggled to advocate for myself. So during those interviews, it re like the in-person, it went really bad. <clears throat> I had, you know, sometimes they, one instance, they left me at a, we were having lunch and they left me. I couldn't see where they went and everyone left the table and I couldn't see. And I was left behind. Another time um, I asked them if I could read the paper instead of having a piece of paper, I asked if I could read it on the iPad. It took me so long to read the content that the interviewer said, it's not, there's not enough time for us to have the interview. We don't even have this. And they left me. Yeah. Right. So I had all of these like terrible situations and I was so burned. And even during my MBA, I worked for TCS in Chennai. Yeah. And uh, even then, I remember coming to uh, my internship. I had the interview when I was in the U.S. and with my boss in Chennai, and it was great. I came in to, to fill out my HR paperwork, and the HR person said, he, I could hear him on the phone. He's like, hold on one second, please. And I, he went over, called my boss, said, he's blind. What are we going to do with him? And he, the HR person sent me home. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I came all the way from the U.S. for this internship. Now you're telling me I can't have the job. And my, my boss, he told me, he's like, if it's the same person who I interviewed, I want him even more now if he's blind. And so that was a really good feeling. But it's that HR person who was that gatekeeper who, who almost kept me out of a, an amazing internship opportunity. And I think that was the same case that I was seeing when I was coming out of my MBA program was that people didn't know how to, like, how to deal with me. They weren't ready to set me up for success. And um, I eventually landed on my feet with a private equity firm that was focused on uh, investing in companies in, in Africa and other emerging markets. And it, it was a good job. It was a startup. It was funded by the U.S. government. But, um, you know, at that time, I was so desperate for a job that I would take anything. So uh, uh, you worked with a company called LCI, which is also quite known in the U.S., for uh, being disability friendly and uh, they do have a lot of visually impaired people working there. So tell us a little bit about the company and what was your role? Yeah, so it took me, so it took me a long time to find this company, LCI, because three years after working for that private equity firm, that company folded. Yeah. And I was out of a job again. And, and you know, the stress of it, my wife, Nicole, and I, we had, uh, we're now married. We had a baby. And we had just built a house in the Washington, D.C. area. Yeah. And all three of those things are not cheap. Yeah. And, and so without a job, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and now the stress of everything caused my site to go even faster. Yeah. So before, as I mentioned, using the magnification software and the inverted colors, none of that worked for me anymore. And so I thought my career was over. And that's when I had heard about this software that was developed at a company called SAS which is a data science company. Yeah. And they had developed the software to help people who are blind and low vision visualize graphs and charts using sounds. Right. And I thought it was so cool. But the cool thing about it was that it was designed by a gentleman named Ed Summers who had retinitis pigmentosa as well, the same eye condition as me. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and he lived in my hometown of Cary, North Carolina, yeah. the same place I never thought anyone blind could ever live. Yeah. And I tried for two, three months to get in touch with him without any luck. And then finally... My wife said, if he can live in North Carolina, maybe we can too. So we found a house online and we told him 
my folks and my dad got so excited. He never thought I was coming home. My dad immediately jumped in the car to go look at this house. And as he's driving, he's talking to us on the phone and he started yelling at something. And I was like, what are you doing, dad? He's like, there's a blind guy in the road. Maybe it's the guy you're trying to get in touch with. I go, dad, don't yell blind people on the road. And he's like, all right, gets out of the car, walks over to this poor guy and says, are you Ed Summers? And the guy says, yes, I am. And my dad uh, puts the phone in his, his ear and, uh, uh, and uh, I apologized to him and he agreed to meet me. And so I came down to North Carolina from Washington that next weekend and he introduced me to the world of accessibility and he showed me that my career wasn't over. And um, he eventually introduced me to the president of LCI, which uh, LCI is the largest employer of people who are blind in the United States and they're a manufacturing company. And uh, when I met with the president at the time, Jeffrey Hodding, he was talking about creating technology-based jobs for people who are blind and, uh, and wanted to start this new business. And so uh, that's how I ended up joining them. To support our work with the blind and visually impaired, you can visit the donate page on our website, www.scorefoundation.org.in. Please note www.scorefoundation.org.in. Why was uh, uh, the company actually interested in blind people? Uh, did uh, was was Jeffrey Harding himself visually impaired by any chance? No, actually, actually nobody. Only one person on the senior leadership team of LCI was actually had a visual impairment. But uh, the LCI was actually formed 86 years ago yeah. uh, by a uh, nonprofit organization called the Lions Club. And so uh, Lions Club uh, started this. It was called Lions Club Industries. And the, it was formed because there were people in downtown Durham, North Carolina, who were blind and begging. And so this volunteer organization wanted to create opportunities for people who are blind to have employment. And so they first started uh, jobs wick, make, making wicker or cane furniture. And eventually that moved to uh, making mattresses for the U.S. government uh, military during the uh, World War II. And uh, uh, since then, they now make over 2,500 products. Wow. And uh, after that, you started your own company. So, yeah. So when I joined LCI, I was tasked with creating technology-based jobs for people who are blind and given my own lived experiences of challenges I face from accessibility to, you know, people's mindsets about, you know, about me, I realized that there are some things we, some systemic barriers we had to address. And so I first launched a digital accessibility business and the whole task was to make digital content accessible for people using assistive technologies like screen readers, which I use now. Yeah. And so well, that business was we started off as LCI Tech and we started creating this uh, uh, accessibility business. And we had around five, six people on the team. We were doing small projects, primarily working with the uh, arts organizations like theaters or museums. And uh, I had also gotten quite involved in the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, space, which is quite popular here in the U.S. now, really about making more inclusive workplaces. Yeah. And I was at this tech conference where I heard this gentleman named Donald Thompson speaking, and he was a tech entrepreneur and investor, and he was talking about the business case for diversity. Yeah. And he offered to meet anyone for coffee. 
And uh, I jumped at the opportunity. And when I met with Donald, he admitted to me, he's like, I never thought about people with disabilities in tech. And I never thought about people with disabilities in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. And so he started having members of his teams come to meet me. And uh, one of those people was a gentleman named Mike Ianelli. And uh, he and I became, uh, we decided to create a joint venture between LCI and uh, one of Donald Thompson's company. And uh, that's what formed Abler. And so that's when now I'm the co-founder and CEO. of. And um, so um, how do you actually go about finding business? Meaning is, do people come to you or you have to go out and look for it? Oh, it started off us really hustling and grinding to find new customers. And, um, and so it's in, I mean, sometimes it's still the same case, but I often go and speak and I do different presentations and, and that's been a good way for us to get new clients. And uh, over the last two years, we brought on 65 new clients and uh, some notable brands such as uh, uh, Ping Golf and Manscaped, which is a new uh, grooming company and uh, uh, many others that uh, uh, ranging from e-commerce to museums to education. And, uh, and now we have even uh, some Fortune 500 companies. And the coolest thing is that they're coming to us now which is really exciting. But uh, we that's just on the digital accessibility side. We also created a disability inclusion training module, which we're now um, rolling out within the North Carolina Community College Systems Office, which is really exciting. And uh, just last week, we actually signed a contract with the state of North Carolina to create a workforce development program to get people who are blind into tech jobs, which uh, I'm super excited about. Well, um Johnny, it's wonderful uh, <laughs> that you could spend time talking to me today and uh, wish you the very best as you move on with your family and with your uh, various plans and all the best for your book launch. Thank you so much, George. I'm so thankful to be here and this was so great. This podcast was brought to you by SCORE Foundation. Yeah, I don't you need